know, there's so many hurdles in communication and leadership because leaders think they have to be perfect leaders, but they don't. They just have to be very transparent and to some degree vulnerable leaders to make them authentic. And I think that's also become more clear in the crisis. Hello and welcome to Speak Like a CEO, the summer series. I'm Lena Coulson and I'm here with Oliver Aus, the CEO of Europso. Hello everyone. From time to time, hardworking CEOs and entrepreneurs need a vacation too. That's why we are taking a short summer break from our regular Speak Like a CEO broadcasting to bring you an exciting new summer series, Expert on Expert. We'll be speaking to the chief communicators from some of the biggest companies in the world, like Allianz, Daimler, Deutsche Telekom, SAP and more. We can't wait to deep dive into what it's like to lead a comms team of over 100 people, why traditional PR might be dead, what new communications trends these seasoned professionals predict to take over in the next five years. So enjoy, and we'll be back with season three of Speak Like a CEO very soon. Our guest today is very special to us. Her name is Sabia Schwarzer. She's the Global Head of Communications and Responsibility at Allianz. Allianz, as I'm sure you know, is a global leader, one of the leading companies in the insurance and financial services industry, operating in more than 70 countries worldwide. The company has more than 100,000 employees. And Sabia knows everything about this company because she's been working for Allianz for over 20 years, now as the chief communicator, before that and many other senior roles. And one of the reasons she's also on the podcast is that the two of us serve on the global jury for the Global PR Award, which is awarded by PR Week in London, and she's actually the chairperson of that jury. Hi Sabia, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Oliver. Thank you for having me on your podcast. That's suddenly quite an impressive resume, and you've been with Allianz for over 20 years, which is quite impressive. I wanted to start by asking you about the PR Week Awards, because they're, I guess, happening quite unusually this year. What's different to the last few years? Well, it's the first time that I've joined, and I'm, uh, I wasn't familiar with the process, so um, I can't compare. But I have to say, um, I was amazed by the amount of creativity that I see. And I see that most of the uh, applications that came in, submissions, were purpose-based. And uh, they were picking up a bigger issue in society, whether it was inequality or climate. So it's very good to see that the conversations, no matter what industry you're talking about, or everybody, all corporations, are um, signing up to tackle the big issues that all of us face in society. It's really interesting. What, what other uh, trends did you see? Uh, I mean, it's really, really fascinating. Look at these sort of most creative submissions uh, by communications professional, professionals globally. Were there other interesting trends you detected? I think I saw an emphasis on diversity, which is very interesting. So diversity and inclusion when it came to the setup of the teams, for example, the agencies of the year or also Um, and looking at the stakeholder perspectives. Uh, Most of the entries made an effort to be very inclusive, uh, not just in the design of the campaign, but also in the vendors they chose and um, uh, the kind of topics they addressed. So I don't think that was particularly new, 
but um, that emphasis didn't go away. And I thought that was interesting. Sometimes you see trends that are there for a year and disappear the next year. But um, inclusion and diversity, as well as uh, inequality and climate, have been with us for a couple of years. And it's good to see that these are long-term issues. They need long-term attention, and that's where the industry is moving. So that was really good to see. We wanted to dive quite specifically into your journey as a communications professional for this podcast. And I was interested to know, first off, how you came to start your career. So do you, <laughs> so I, I ended up... Uh, you know, I, I think most of my colleagues that I've spoken to, nobody left school or university with the intention to work for an insurance company. So <laughs> and that's just justice uh, to the company, to be honest with you, because, you know, insurance is pretty exciting, but you wouldn't know if you're not on the inside. I mean, we are one of the largest Hollywood insurers, so all the blockbuster movies that you see are actually insured by Allianz in some form or another. Um, you know, so we're very involved with the set and the stars and, and things like that. Uh, we are also the uh, behind big infrastructure projects around the world. So, you know, without insurers, the, um, the world's infrastructure wouldn't happen because, you know, it needs to be insured in the building phase and also going forward. Um, Allianz holds 10% of all airlines. And so, you know, if you think about life, you know, insurance touches every part of your life. Uh, but it's difficult, um, it's got a difficult uh, uh, image. And so nobody thinks about, about insurance when they leave university, and neither did I. So I uh, always wanted to be a storyteller, for sure. And so I started off in journalism, and I was a, a broadcast uh, reporter for um, uh, radio and television. And I had a stipend to go to Hong Kong in 1996. And it was, a, it was part of an exchange program that the German government uh, was involved in, an exchange program where you could, where Asian journalists came to, um, to Germany and took secondments there and German journalists went to Asia and reported from there. And so I went to Hong Kong, it was uh, the year before the handover, so very exciting time in Hong Kong because People were so busy with um, with stories around what will happen after the handover. I got to do major work, although I was still quite young. And I got to know Allianz because Allianz was one of the sponsors of the program. And we were told by the organizers of the program that we should please go and introduce ourselves in the countries that we were seconded to, to the sponsors if they were operating there. So I went to Allianz and I introduced myself and I thanked them for the stipend and the opportunity to be in Hong Kong for a couple of months. And that's how my contact to Allianz came about. But I had no intention of working there. And um, I did go back to, um, to Bonn at that time, which was still the capital of, uh, of uh, Germany. And I was reporting from there. And I thought it was incredibly dull after, <laughs> after being in Hong Kong for three months. And I wanted to go back to the region. And I was looking for a job in the region. And uh, my station at that time, Deutsche Welle, said they would support me as a stringer, but they weren't looking to establish a full-time position in Hong Kong. So I, I was asking around. And then I got a call from Allianz uh, saying, you know, we remember you. You were working in, in Hong Kong and we're setting up our headquarters in Singapore. Are you interested in a job? And of course, I said, no. Because firstly, I don't want to go to Singapore. It's very boring compared to Hong Kong. Secondly, I don't even know how policies work. 
because my parents, you know, at that stage were still, you know, did it, had it taken out a life insurance policy for me and things like that. So I wasn't really looking into my own finances so much. It was a very unfamiliar world. And so I had no intention. So I said no. And um, the head of communication at that time convinced me to just come to the headquarters and just talk to the person who was setting up the Singapore office. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I've never been to Munich, might as well go. And I also remember it was my grandmother's birthday and I thought I could get her a nice gift from Dalmayer. That was my motivation for making that trip to Munich. Wow. Okay. So a, yeah. a global story to coming back to Allianz, I guess. <laughs> Do you think it helped that you um, had a start in your career in journalism to really, I guess, get you thinking about communications in a maybe a different critical way, especially when you say, you know, Allianz or insurance wasn't a particularly sexy or interesting topic at the time to come in and somehow make it interesting. I think the, the, the thing that I brought with me and other journalists uh, would do the same is you ask questions. You are exploring and trying to understand and make sense and then tell a story. And, um, I think coming in with an inquisitive mind, unafraid to ask any question, because you know, if you work in the media world, it's less hierarchical to some extent. You know, I was speaking um, to heads of state because I was in, in, in Bonn as a very young reporter. And the job is, you know, to ask questions. And you really, as a journalist, are, um, have a very important role in society. You know, you're asking questions on behalf of society. If you're in a company and you're the head of communications, you're asking questions on behalf of your stakeholders. And those questions need to be asked no matter how painful or not they might be for an organization, but those are the questions out there. So I think it was very beneficial for me that I had learned um, early as a journalist, particularly because I was doing politics um, you know, political um, uh, reporting that I had had to talk to senior people in politics and learn to be unafraid to ask questions. And why did you want to become a storyteller? I think it has to do with my, you know, I grew up in Pakistan. My dad is Indian. My mother is German. I come from a very strong storytelling culture. And if you've ever been to uh, those countries, to the subcontinent, you will know that families uh, thrive on stories. The oral tradition is very much alive. And I remember as a child, my parents used to shoo me out to play with the other kids because I usually sat with the adults listening to their stories. And of course, you know, I, I found that, that culture is very creative and very visual and the language is very rich. And I was just fascinated by the stories. Of course, the stories kept changing depending on who you were talking to, you know, which is another thing. So stories are told for an emotion, not for, uh, for the facts necessarily. So I, I was just very fascinated by, um, by storytelling always. I love listening to stories and I love telling stories. Do you think that companies today are good at storytelling? I think it depends. I think there are some companies that capture the imagination of, uh, of people and uh, 
if you're going to ask me for an example, I'd have to think a little bit more. I think some, some companies are extremely good. Uh, I think about Unilever and Paul Pullman. It has to do with the fact that they were very engaged in sustainability and, uh, uh, and gave their, their business a very strong purpose. And so I think storytelling becomes easy when you know why you are getting up um, every day to go to work. Yeah. I don't think companies are courageous enough to tell the real stories because every real stories has every real story has a protagonist, has attention that is there, could have a happy ending, might not have an ending at all, might have an open ending. It invites you to think about things and to reflect. And I think the way corporate stories in the past have been told was very a very linear story with not too much tension. But who's interested in a smooth story? You know, there has to be some sort of tension. And also, I think it's not about giving all the answers. I think that a lot of corporations felt that they were uh, felt obliged to give answers, even if it was just in their area. We have reached a time, and this COVID crisis makes it clear, where answers are not easy to come by. They will need collective storytelling and imagining uh, to find new ways of solving big problems. And I think that process had started. So to answer your question, I think corporations need to be more courageous to tell real stories. Stories yeah. that have attention, that might not have all the answers, but that invite thinking. And how do you, how do you approach storytelling at Allianz? Is, is, there, is it just ingrained in your team that they know that that's our approach? And I know you do this quite a lot at Allianz. So how, how do you make sure that your large team engages in storytelling every day? So when I first came on board, you know, and I took on a team that had extremely good skills and all the fundamentals were in place. Um, so, you know, I started with a very good team and um, uh, I, I said, what do we want to achieve? What is it that we want to achieve? And we said, we want to win hearts. And that might be a particularly tall order for a financial services company, but winning hearts was what we wanted to do. And in every interaction that we had, with each other, with our stakeholders, um, you know, we said, are we winning hearts? Is this story winning hearts? Yes, there's a mind piece, but we are very factual. We are experts and that's great. And we need that basis and we're financially strong and we need to tell that story. That's core to who we are. It gives us the license to operate, but there was something missing. And that was the heart piece, which has become so much more important today. And so we said, if we want to win hearts, what do our stories need to look like? And one key ingredient to any good story is the protagonist, because people are interested in people. It sounds really simple when you say winning hearts, which I guess is essentially injecting emotion, empathy into the stories that you're telling. But I imagine this is not so easy in practice, especially for a huge company like Allianz, which is, you know, the opposite, I guess you know, it's an insurance company and it's not about the emotional side. It's very much about the rational and the practical. Was there any, I guess, discord ever in that story or did you find it quite easy to kind of push this kind of message? There is daily discord. And because Allianz is a company and that story is harder to tell, 
But if you see Allianz as a collection of 140,000 people and their stories, you would just be amazed at the kind of people you find there. Every person has a story and mostly the stories are incredible. I started to dig into the stories of my team. And you know, I have someone in the team who's over 60 years old, he's German, but he was born and raised in Argentina. And he made his way to Germany on a ship and he paid for that passage by working in the kitchen of the ship. And if you listen to his story, um, you know how he started from scratch, just amazing. I had somebody in my team who's retired now who um, you know, was imprisoned um, in the, in the XGDR, you know, because he wrote pieces that were, um, you know, that were very critical to the, to the regime and who had been betrayed by his own best friend. You know, what a story. I have, um, you know, I have uh, people who were carpenters before and now uh, work in the department. I have people who are into theater and um, people's life stories are so interesting. So if you see Allianz as Allianz and trying to tell the corporate story, it's very difficult. But if you look at Allianz as 140,000 people and their stories, it's incredibly easy to tell that story through people. And you will see a pattern at Allianz, at least I've seen it, and I've been around for long enough, worked on three different continents. And the one thing we have in common is we are a little bit like a family. You know, and in a family, you um, also have the annoying people and the difficult ones, but you also have the ones you can rely on. And there's incredibly rich stories. And I think that's what the company um, thrives on internally. And that's why people have stayed so long. It's because of the people. And telling those stories is, uh, uh, is very easy. And um, so my team, you know, set out to tell the stories of people at Allianz. Because the common, common pattern is that they have incredibly rich histories. And one of the persons telling the Allianz stories, obviously your CEO, Oliver Beater, and if I remember correctly, he was the first CEO of a major German company on Instagram. How yes. did that come about? Well, actually, it was his own idea. Uh, he's, a, he's a very visual person, and he realized that, um, and, and he loves photography, and, you know, he loves art. And um, so it was his own idea to tell stories of, the way he sees the world or what he observes through Instagram, at least to try it out. And I was very supportive because it supports the, the kind of stories that we want to tell. We want to tell the stories behind the CEO because the CEO, yes, has an office, but ultimately, you know, behind that office is a person and who that person is, is also quite important. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, that's exactly the way to approach it, isn't it? That the CEO is, is open or even suggests it rather than, than us communicators suggesting that they should open a new channel, which is maybe not conducive to their personality. Right? That's right. Exactly. I mean, he deliberately didn't want to do Twitter mm -hmm. because it's a very different audience and the kind of conversations and the tone, you know, can be exhausting. Yeah. yeah, I think that's very, that's very fair. How, just for maybe one last question on storytelling. This is a really, really interesting subject for us. How do you see it in terms of telling stories about yourself or telling stories about your employees or your employees tell you their story? To what extent do you need to let others tell their story? I.e., when does it become too much about the organization, not enough about the people you serve? That's an interesting question because I think... Um, in today's world, 
who you are and what you do is so intertwined. And if you look at the next generation, it's a core question they have and it's attached to what their own values are. So I don't think it's possible to tell the corporate narrative without the personal story anymore in today's world and going forward. You know, even if you think about the big, the big CEOs, whether it's Richard Branson or Bill Gates, you know, very purposeful communication, but very core to what they do. They are not different people when they are a CEO. You know, they, they're, the, they, they're the same person, whether they step through the doors of, a, of their corporations or they're outside of the doors and in their home. They remain the same person and they tell that story. And so I think it's, um, I would never burden a story with too much of a corporate narrative because I don't think that that's what people are truly interested in. I think you have, you know, some stakeholders like analysts, of course, they have a job to do and there's a story to be told too, um, of course. And, you know, that there the focus will be different. But if you're talking about employees, you know, which is a key stakeholder group for us, if you think about our customers, you know, which are very, very, you know, a, a variety of people, corporations, as well as individuals, a broad part in, um, of society, especially in Germany. Uh, so, you know, I think I wouldn't overburden the, the, the stories with a corporate narrative. I'm sure you have a lot of nuggets of wisdom. Um, and as the global head of comms of Allianz, there's a lot that we could learn from you. What I was particularly interested to know was what's something that you learned quite early on in your career that has really followed you through, uh, that really influences the way you lead and communicate today? I think that's a, it, it's probably something very personal. It has to do with the, with, it's a, it's a strength and a weakness at the same time. And it uh, leads back to the beginning of the conversation. It is as a, as a journalist, you can ask any question and you can be very aggressive in making your point because you have to be very assertive. And, you know, when I was a, a political reporter, I had to be very assertive because, you know, some people that I encountered in my conversations were really avoiding the, the hard questions. So I was very assertive, uh, very blunt. I took a very strong position on certain topics. I tried to, you know, go a little bit too far in order to push the, um, the person that I was interviewing, um, you know, to really get to the core of what they were thinking and to really take a position. And when I came to Allianz, I realized that in order to get the story and get to the, to the truth, you know, I needed to deploy a different set of skill. I needed to be more diplomatic because I realized early on, in fact, after the first three months, because my first boss in Singapore, he wanted to send me back to Germany after three months. He didn't want to work with me anymore. anymore. <laughs> Um, he actually called headquarters and said, please take her back. I can't handle her. And thankfully, the head of comms at that time, you know, stood by me. But he also gave me a call and he said, what the heck is going on? And I had to reflect on it. And I realized that I had changed setting. You know, this was a corporate setting. And while my quest for stories and for truth was still relevant, the way to approach that you know, because now I was part of a system and not outside of the system, was with great empathy and diplomacy in order to get to the answers. Because if I pushed people into a corner, you know, they would not, they would not open up. 
they, and they had no obligation to open up because I was part of the system. You know, I wasn't representing an outside voice. I mean, yes, I am. And then I'm still part of the system. So if you wanted to really hold the balance, it was important to be empathetic, to be persistent, but to bring a gentleness to it that I think I was missing at the beginning. You know, I was um, very much questioning a lot of things. And um, I think the way I did it was wrong. You know, it led to people feeling very attacked. And I learned early on that that's not how you get results. There's other ways without abandoning your values. There's gentler ways. You know, sometimes you have to build coalitions and so on and so forth to, um, to approach a problem. And also try to understand the reason why people are not being straightforward or why they're telling you a different story. And I'm not saying that that happens all the time, but you know, you have to look at different angles. And you can do that with a lot of empathy and get more. And probably I would have become a better journalist over time if I had applied um, those principles as well. But that's something that I learned. And I've, you know, I've practiced since then. I've tried to practice more and more. I think that's very special. We've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast over the last two years. And I don't think once has anyone ever mentioned the importance of gentleness in communication, you know, going beyond just being authentic but really having empathy and really trying to understand how to connect with the persons you're trying to talk to i think that's very yeah a very good lesson in life yeah yeah absolutely we'd love to ask you about one change one challenge and one crisis you had to deal with as a communicator because we know obviously that uh, the stakes (laughs) are often very very high and things are always under pressure and changing and very challenging but when you look at back at your career uh, we'd love to hear about one change one challenge one crisis and how you dealt with those wow i mean that's such a profound question that's a big question i know it's a big question big ask um one change one change. Well, the biggest change for me in my career was moving from the U.S. and moving from the, uh, the regional operations of Allianz to the headquarter. And I think anybody that has been in the region or in an operating entity and then moves to the headquarter knows that there's a special you know, transition there because you move to a more strategic body and um, it's, it's slightly different. So I, I, and then again, I was away for... First of all, I, although I have a German passport and a German mother, I don't, very, I don't really feel very German at heart. I feel actually very American because that's where I spend most of my life. So returning to Germany after such a long time and taking on a, at that time, mostly German team, I think was the biggest change that I've had to do during my, uh, my over 20 years career at Allianz. I was very naive about certain things. For example about the backlash I would get when I decided to not do the so-called authorization of interviews anymore. Because in Germany, it's very common that if a CEO or senior management gives an interview, you know, the, the, the media outlet would actually give it back to you for fact check and corrections of some sort. And I was just shocked that this was still common practice. And early on, Uh, You know, I told the CEO that I would like to not do that and I explained why. And he went along with it, thankfully, with, you know, he took big risks for himself too. So I'm very thankful that he did. But I was naive because I underestimated the amount of animosity that I would get here 
also from fellow community, you know, head of comms in other companies who said you're making a big mistake. You know, you could, if, if somebody says something and it's not authorized, authorized and it moves the share price, you know, you'll be in big trouble. And, um, and yes, you know, there were very difficult moments because I, I or actually our CEO could not take back or slightly correct what he had said. But in the end, we fared better because, you know, coming back to the truth and storytelling intention, you know, if you have a piece that is very um, slick and smooth, people are more suspicious. And we are in an industry where we daily need to gain the trust of everybody we talk to. So, um, so I think the change was from the U.S. to, to Germany. In the U.S., every challenge, you know, people want to embrace it. In, uh, in Germany, people are more anxious, you know, because they don't know the way. It, it's more threatening. So I think I underestimated some of the cultural aspects of that transition as well. So that was the biggest change I made. I think the challenge that I face right now is that communication is increasingly becoming many to many. And this notion of you can control a narrative is, was always an illusion to some degree, because if you were able to control the narrative, I think a lot of people and companies would have much better reputation. So I don't think that was ever true, but in today's world, it's not true at all. Communication is many to many, so your employees are your ambassadors for your brand and you guide and steer them through a very strong set of values that are not just on posters, but can be experienced and seen by your employees. And so how do you, how do you manage the web of networks and connections and communities that are sprouting all over the organization, which is actually a delight to see. And people are understanding the value and the power of communication and storytelling. That's fabulous. And how do you still maintain a certain sense of direction in that storytelling? So I think that's, that's a big challenge. And, you know, companies have approached it with different things like newsrooms and other things where they try to choreograph content, but it's getting more and more difficult to actually do that. Looking forwards, what do you think will be one of the biggest changes in communication in, say, the next five years? I think that data is going to change uh, communications a lot. I think data is going to force everybody who's telling a, telling a story to uh, engage much more with, with stakeholders because data will tell you where the conversations are going, how they are developing, what the tone of communication is. You know, they are, data is going to show you a lot about your impact in communication, whether you're actually reaching someone or not. And I think communication will become much more community-based and data-based in the sense that you'll get deep insights. I mean, we're already doing that, but they will continue to become better and better. Mm -hmm. And what was your biggest crisis? And, and I mean, you and I uh, went through the dot-com bubble, 9-11, um, the big recess, the great recession, and now this where do you rank the corona crisis or if that wasn't the biggest crisis you faced what was it to be honest with you while the things that you mentioned economically um you know and and for society in some instances were a big crisis it, it was not just one company involved in that you know it was a it was a broader issue and i find it easier to communicate if it's a broader issue because you are a joint coalition trying to, you know, address topics or storytell. And um, I think the crisis that I faced 
was a, a very different one. I, when I first went to the U.S. from Singapore, Alliance was facing litigation in the U.S. by Holocaust survivors who were claiming that their life insurance policies had been confiscated and the company owed them money to very, simplify a very complex topic. You know, as a, as a company um, dealing with complex reparation issues, um, you know, an international commission working on this issue, lawyers and um, a number of companies, it still comes down to that one phone call you get from a Holocaust survivor who thinks that his destiny would have been very different if, or could now be different, if he would receive certain funds that he thinks he's, he's owed. owed. And what do you say? What do you say? Because no words that you can use would be able to even a little bit console him or transport an understanding that you have for his story. And I have to say I was speechless and I didn't want to take any position, but I just wanted to listen. Because in the face of tragedy, you know, people losing their whole livelihoods and having gone through so much hardship, what do you say? You don't say, well, that's not Alianza's fault. Well, there are contracts in place. By the way, you know, through the reparation process, you already received. That would have just been a terrible thing to say from human to human. And so the hardest, you know, the crisis I faced, I think, was during those conversations, how do I represent the company, how do I represent myself? Because I can't, you know, I am a human. I'm not going to represent the company in a way that is not in line with being a human. So I've listened sometimes for 20 minutes without saying a word. Oftentimes at the end of the conversation in tears myself, I've just listened and not said anything. So I think, yes, the, the, the biggest crisis was around the topic of Holocaust because it's, a, it's a, a, a tragedy, it's a, you know, of unmeasurable dimensions. And um, how do you respond as a person and as a corporation to those things? So most of the time, I just listen to survivors who called. Wow. Uh, that, that's, that's very moving and I can relate, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right about the crises that hit everyone. That uh, are easy; they're, they're harder to deal with for society because everyone's affected, but less hard for an individual company or co- communicator because everyone is in the same boat. Before we close, we'd love to have your views on the future of communications. You already said that data community many-to-many will shape the way companies, organizations will communicate more and more in the future. What do you think specifically, uh, anyone in any position of responsibility, any communicator, any founder, CEO, should do now about preparing themselves for the communication of the 2020s? I think the number one thing I would say is you can't outsource communication. If you're a leader, communication is core to your management and your leadership. And this crisis has shown it in particular. You know, the Edelman Trust Barometer showed, they they did a special analysis, and it showed that employees look to their corporations for guidance in the midst of uncertainty and 
you know, diverging messages on COVID and, and so on and so forth. They look to their employers. So leadership is so important and core to leadership is communication. So I think that is something that I would want to pass on and say, if you're a leader, don't outsource communication. Communication is not something a department does. Communication is something that you need to do and think about actively. Who are you? What do you stand for? How are you going to tell your story? And the other thing I think, and that's a really hard one, and it's related also to leadership is, you can't hide who you are. No amount of polished speeches or trainings or whatnot will hide who you are. So be very intentional about, you know, where you want to engage, what's important to you, understand what's not, build a complementary team and, and know that you can't hide and it's okay. And it's okay because you don't have to be perfect. And I think, you know, there's so many hurdles in communication and leadership because leaders think they have to be perfect leaders, but they don't. They just have to be very transparent and to some degree vulnerable leaders to make them authentic. And I think that's also become more clear in the crisis. Yeah, this is, this is really, really excellent advice. And, and you and I know this, a lot of leaders are reluctant to take this advice. And I know your CEO is, is, is really good at this, but a lot of, a lot of them out there, they think it's something they should outsource and it takes a lot of convincing, which, which sometimes we're able to do and sometimes we are not because our, our philosophy on this point is, is very similar. How, what, what, what case do you put forward when the CEO pushes back or leadership pushes back and says, I don't have time for this. My job is to run the company. Uh, you know, I don't have time for, for Instagram or LinkedIn. Uh, that's your job. Um, you know, I, I focus on the numbers on the business. I think the point I would make to any leader is, uh, yes, of course, you should be focused on the numbers and the business. And yes, you should you know, have a competitive strategy that you're working on and all those things. But in order to make those things actionable, you will need people. And people don't follow strategies. They don't buy into strategies. People follow people. You know, people don't come to Allianz because of Allianz. They come to Allianz because of people. And you need to show who you are as a person, including the knowledge that you have and the expertise. But for a leader, expertise has become a commodity. You can today find any level of, of expertise on the internet in groups. You could find some expertise is not the currency anymore. It's not. Leadership is the currency. And that's hard. And that switch is really hard to make. But I think any leader who thinks expertise is the currency, you know, has, has missed the past 10 years because it's not. It's very easy to get expertise. You see it with all the startups that are coming up. These are people who, you know, build businesses from scratch without having any business degree or formal education sometimes. And how would that be possible? It's possible because they have charisma, they have vision, they have personality, they are good communicators. So, you know, just to look around you um, and see how that works. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. And maybe one last question, and we didn't want to make this about Corona because the advice is way more valuable and timeless. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you one thing about it. So what, what at the moment, we're recording this in May, is your biggest pain point? I think related to Corona, it's more about my team because we've been working extremely hard 
And how do you separate working from home, which is a very practical question, and maybe you didn't want to go there. But, you know, how do you separate working from home with your home life? And how do you have boundaries in place? And what does good look like for you? And for me as a leader, how do I keep the community alive without seeing them, uh, at least in the person? I do. I am on a lot of uh, webinars and Zoom calls and so on. You know, so how do I keep that community alive? It's not so much about safety. I think uh, my colleagues at Allianz are doing a fantastic job. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you keep the storytelling and the bond between people alive when they can't see each other, they can't talk to each other um, as much as um, they usually would. I think that's definitely a problem that all teams and companies are facing right now and hopefully making the most of an interesting situation, I guess, to really lean into digital communications and other forms of connecting. I attended a seminar uh, yesterday and um, they were talking about the fact that we, you know, the last few years or actually the last 20 years saw such a rise of free Wi-Fi in um, cafes and so on. But uh, the prediction by these experts was that um, it will be Wi-Fi free. That's the new thing. And I think that is um, something that I'm thinking about because if working from home will become more permanent, you do need times off. You need two times off to regenerate, um, to uh, recharge your batteries, and it needs boundaries. So you, as a leader, I'm thinking about that for sure. Yeah, that's really good advice. How big is your team out of, out of interest? So I have 50 people in Munich and then 300 worldwide. Wow. That's a pretty big team and obviously uh, over many, many, many countries. And Sabi, we could, we could talk to you for hours. This is so fascinating. I've made so many notes, <laughs> so many more questions. What you said uh, towards the end that, you know, leadership today is not just about knowing your numbers and being good at the job and coming up with strategies because people don't follow strategies. They follow leaders, they follow people. Uh, in order to do that, you need to, to make communication uh, one of the centerpieces of your leadership. And I think that's true for all leaders. And some, some already get this, some always understood this, and some uh, are still in the process of, of understanding it, I think. But in order to become a leader in the long term, it's, um, to me, it's one of, the, you know, one, one of the key insights and almost truisms of the 2020s, probably, that you can't do this without communication skills. Mm. Thank you so much, sure. Sabia. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. And if you have any other questions, just, just let me know.